It's good to see some of our members who've been in and out over this summer, now that summer's finally over, back here with us, and it's good to look around and see some visitors here with us today. You're our honored guest here, and member or visitor, we're glad that you're here. I hope the time we spend here together will be uplifting, strengthening, beneficial for all of us this morning. I'd like to begin by reading to us uh, one verse from our text that was read just a few minutes ago, 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse number 9. It says that Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. When the mule went on, there hangs Absalom, suspended there that day as he fled from the field of battle, caught there by the long tresses of his hair, that luxurious hair that the king's son was so proud of. Picture that scene this morning, hanging there all alone, Deserted by his army, deserted even by his mule, waiting for those three fatal darts from the hand of Joab, and then for his resting place in a pit in the woods underneath a pile of stones. That was his grave, and that was also his monument. But that wasn't where he intended to lie. Absalom had already built for himself a costly tomb in the king's valley. He called it Absalom's Monument. But he wasn't buried there. He was buried in a hole in the forest. How did we get here? For those who don't remember this story or maybe who've never heard this story, let's set the background for just a moment. Absalom was the rebellious son of King David. He was trying to overthrow his father. And he'd persuaded a great many people to join in his effort. That morning, three divisions of David's soldiers had marched out to give battle to Absalom's army. They'd end up meeting him in the forest of Ephraim. But before they went, David strictly charged his commanders. He said, for my sake, see that no harm comes to the young man Absalom. It was no secret. He was really open about this, and everyone heard him give that command. He was afraid that his son would perish in the battle. And even though he was in rebellion to David, his father's heart would still be broken. Well, as it turns out, that's precisely what happened. Absalom's army, inexperienced as it was, was no match for David's veteran troops led by his commander-in-chief, Joab. They were routed. Great slaughter. Absalom himself tried to flee on his royal mule, and as he did, he came upon a company of David's soldiers. 
And so when he saw them at the last minute, he turned and he tried to run in another direction. And as he did, he galloped through the forest. And it's there that the boughs of the great oak tree caught him there by his head. And the mule went out from under him, ran off in flight. There Absalom was, suspended between heaven and earth. One of David's soldiers saw him, but he didn't dare to raise his hand against him because he remembered what David had commanded to deal gently with Absalom. But that man did go and tell Joab. And if you don't remember the name Joab, I think Joab quietly is probably one of the most despicable characters in the Bible. Joab says, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I wouldn't reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against, treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And knowing Joab, he's probably right. Joab said, I won't waste time like this with you. Joab rode up rapidly. He took three darts or javelins, some translations say, and he thrust them there into the heart of Absalom. Then ten young men of his bodyguard drew their swords and they buried them in the body of the rebellious prince. Now all during the battle, David had been anxiously waiting for news from the front. And before long he saw a runner coming from the field. He must have news. And he gave his report and David said, what news do you have of the young man, Absalom? And the fellow said, well, I saw a great commotion, but I'm not really sure what it was all about. He was lying. He was an eyewitness to what had happened, but he was evidently afraid to tell David the truth. But then a second runner appeared at David's palace, and David asked again, is the young man, Absalom, safe? He replied in verse number 32, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. You didn't need to draw David a picture. He knew what that meant. And then we have one of the most heartbreaking verses, I think, in all the Bible. Verse number 33. The king goes up to his chamber and he weeps. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The mourning of the brokenhearted father, David, closes the sad history of Absalom. And when we think about this story, when we talk about it, when we preach it, we normally focus on that relationship. And in fact, we often talk more about David than we do about Absalom. And those are worthy lessons there. 
But I want us to think particularly about Absalom this morning. And to go back to that text I read at the outset, back in verse number 9, the mule that was under him went on. That's what it says. That mule, believe it or not, has a message to teach us. Whatever the evil man rides upon, that is, whatever he trusts in, will ultimately run out from under him. In the words of the book of Job, these powerful words, his confidence shall be rooted out and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. That's Job chapter 18, verse 14. And so Absalom was brought to judgment to the king of terrors. I think a lot of us have a sort of fascination about ruins. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But there's at least some of us who like to visit historical places. And maybe we go climbing over the ruins of old houses or forts or castles. I've done a good bit of that in my time. Maybe some of the rest of you have too. But in a similar way, I think there's a fascination for us with the ruin of great men in Scripture. And we see those portraits painted for us frequently. Men like Saul, the first king of Israel, a man who had so much promise. He was literally head and shoulders above everyone else in the nation. He was a good-looking guy, tall, strong. If you were casting the role of Saul in a play or in a movie or the role of the king of Israel, you would cast Saul because he looked like a king. And he had a number of other fine qualities. Early on, he was modest. They tried to acclaim him and he was there hiding with the baggage. He sought counsel from God's man, Samuel. But over time, Saul became more concerned with himself than with anything else. He rebelled against God. He sought his own interest. And so we come to the end and we find deserted by God, deserted by God's man, Samuel. He goes to the cave of the witch of Endor where he learns that he'll die on the battlefield the next day. Maybe Saul is not someone we typically think of as a a great man, at least in terms of his faithfulness. Well, what about Gideon then? Gideon's one of those stories that a lot of us learn when we're kids. It's one of those that we cover in Sunday school. Gideon was the judge who delivered Israel from the Midianites with only a 300-man army. Now, that army started out at over 30,000, but God said that was too many, unless they might think that they delivered themselves through force of arms. So God had him whittle them down. And then he whittled them down again until there were only 300 left so that there'd be no doubt that God was the one who was the means of their deliverance. That took a great deal of faith to trust in God's deliverance. That tiny 300-man band against the army of an entire nation, especially if you remember the way that they went, (laughs) that plan, subterfuge, 
torches hidden in jars and armed with horns and just making a big commotion there. And yet, the part of the story we don't remember, the sad postscript for this great man of faith is that he went and he erected an idol at Ophrah where the angel of the Lord had called him. And Judges says that that became a great snare to him and to his family. Or what about Solomon? Everyone, even those who aren't that acquainted with Scripture, know about the proverbial reputation of Solomon. Wisest and most glorious of the kings of Israel. Solomon had enough wisdom as a young man to go ahead and ask for wisdom from God when God told him to ask for anything he might want. And because he asked for wisdom, God blessed him too with wealth beyond anyone else in the world. But in his old age, Solomon was led astray by his foreign wives trying to please them. He bowed down to them in worship, to false gods. He erected temples even for them, even one to Molech, who was the Canaanite deity who was worshipped through human child sacrifice. Now, Absalom was not a great man in the sense of the faithfulness of men like Gideon and Solomon who lost their way. But Absalom certainly had the potential for greatness within him. He was made of some great stuff. He was a man of imposing physical presence. 2 Samuel chapter 14 tells us that from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, there was not a single blemish in his entire body. And his hair, that famous hair, he cut it only once a year. It tells us that it weighed 200 shekels. That's about five pounds. Absalom was also a man who had a, a charismatic personality. He was persuasive. He was eloquent. And the way that he went about beginning his rebellion against David shows that he was a, a crafty and cunning individual. He would take up a post out in the gate every day, and people would come to the king with some sort of dispute, seeking for him to arbitrate it. And Absalom would pull them aside, and he'd ask them to tell him all about it. And then he'd sympathize with them. He'd, he'd tell them that, well, you know, that was, a, that was a good story, a good case, but unfortunately there was, there was no one to hear their case. And then he would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a disputer cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. The writer of 2 Samuel tells us that that's how he turned away the hearts of Israel. And Absalom was also a man of great ambition. He wanted to hold a, a high place in the nation. He wanted his name to be remembered after he was gone. It was that goal that motivated him to build that costly pillar, that monument for his tomb, Absalom's place. You see, when we evaluate Absalom, it seems that he possessed every grace you could possibly want except the grace of God. And in spite of all of that advantage that he had, the mule that was under him went on. And Absalom's once flawless body was cast into that pit in the forest and covered with that pile of rocks. What caused the ruin of Absalom? 
One of the reasons for Absalom's fall was his selfishness. Absalom is arguably the greatest egoist in all of the Bible. Now, we said already that he had high ambitions. But the problem is his ambitions were only for himself. Instead of treating other people like people, he treated them only as a means to serve his ends. He had no sense of duty, no sense of pity. And if he had to climb the throne of Israel by literally stepping over his father's dead body, he'd do that. Ambition can be a good thing, but the person whose ambition ends only in themselves often finds that that ambition will be the end of them. Remember what Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. The story of Absalom is a great example of that. Another reason for Absalom's fall was his irreverence. And sometimes we talk about three forms of reverence. Reverence for ourselves, reverence for others, and reverence for God. Well, Absalom had no reverence for himself. He didn't hesitate to defile himself with treason, with murder. There were no depths to which he wouldn't sink in order to try to grasp power. He had no reverence for others. The first move he gave against his father David was to actually kill his half-brother Amnon at a feast. And then in a particularly graphic scene, when he drove David out of Jerusalem, he asserted his dominance there by pitching a tent on the roof of a building there in public in full view of the city, taking David's concubines in there and violating them openly. And, of course, he had no problem with even killing his father if it came to it in order to take power. He had no problems trampling anyone and everyone under his feet. And then Absalom was totally lacking in what we would call reverence for God. David, his father, was called a man after God's own heart. And that's not because David was perfect. Far from it. David sinned, and he sinned greatly, but when confronted with his sin, David was humbled. He turned, he repented. In contrast to that, read the story of Absalom. It covers several pages, several chapters in 2 Samuel. Not once will you see him in any way at all concerned with the things of God. Nothing that he says, nothing that he does indicates that he had any reverence or regard for God at all. He's the prototypical example of the man the psalmist described. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's the 10th Psalm, verse 4. But the enduring lesson of the life of Absalom comes back to that phrase we've mentioned more than once this morning. The mule that was under him went on. You see, Absalom trusted in himself. He trusted in his power, in his cunning, in his wisdom, in his natural charisma that he had. 
And ironically, the very thing that he valued the most, those good looks, that long hair, that was the thing that resulted in his downfall. Sometimes it happens in this life. But if it doesn't happen in this life, ultimately, the one who is selfish, the one who is irreverent, the one who places their faith in themselves rather than God will face disaster at judgment. Think about those two monuments we've mentioned this morning. The one in the King's Valley, that marble pillar built by Absalom for his resting place, covered with gold, with silver, shining in the sunshine, glowing in the moonlight. That tomb's empty. Never had a tenant. But on the other hand, look at that other monument. That pile of rocks in the forest of Ephraim. Absalom's body, now blemished by those darts from Joab, cut to pieces by those ten swords of Joab's bodyguard, buried like a dog with only his broken-hearted father to mourn him. Absalom left God out of his life and out of his plans. And the lesson for us this morning is we must not let the fate of Absalom be our fate. Oh, I know we're not likely to meet nearly as spectacular an end as he did, and our sins aren't going to manifest themselves in those infamous ways that his did, but the root of his sin, his selfishness, his pride, his trust in self rather than trusting God, that's common to all of us. That's the root of all our sins. God must be first in our lives. Jesus must be the Lord and the master of our lives. If you've never made him Lord and master of your life, won't you do that this morning? Put your faith, your trust in him. Turn to God in repentance. Confess that Jesus is Lord, not only by the mouth, but in the waters of baptism, where you're buried with him. Have your sins washed away and rise up to live that new life dedicated to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that at one point, but somewhere along the way you turned. You've gone in the wrong direction. You trusted in yourself rather than trusting in God. If that applies to you, won't you turn again today before that mule runs out from under you? What you trust fails you. And it's too late. Whatever your need may be, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.